From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. My family members, I think, believed in the promise of this country, understood that we were far from a perfect place, but also believed in the promise of what we could be if we set our minds to it. That's Joe Kennedy III. Like earlier generations of his famous family, Kennedy represented Massachusetts in the United States Congress. He left the House in 2021 after losing his primary challenge to incumbent Democratic Senator Ed Markey. Kennedy has dedicated much of his career, both in Congress and now as a private citizen, to fighting poverty. He's especially focused on providing civil legal assistance to low-income Americans. And he's involved with an organization, the Legal Services Corporation, that tries to do exactly that. I spoke with Kennedy about the work of the LSC and its new report on the legal needs of low-income Americans, but we also had a wide-ranging discussion about a topic that is often associated with the Kennedy family, public service. At times, the conversation got personal, about the sacrifices involved in running for public office, and about the baggage and blessings of growing up a Kennedy. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Now let's get to your questions. So in the midst of all the discussion about the eight sensational, fairly dynamic hearings that the January 6th committee has held over the last month or two, the question I get most often is what is the Justice Department doing? It's something that Joyce Vance and I discuss on the Cafe Insider virtually every week, and we did again this week. And in the late-breaking story from Tuesday evening in the Washington Post, we have a little bit of a better answer to that question. Here was the tweet announcing the breaking news from Tuesday evening. Quote, the Justice Department is investigating President Donald Trump's actions as part of its criminal probe of efforts to overturn the 2020 election results, according to four people familiar with the matter, end quote. And the headline of the article itself says simply, Justice Department investigating Trump's actions in January 6th criminal probe. You may be asking yourself the question, well, how is that news? How could that not possibly have been true months ago? And we don't yet have an answer to that question. Much of the reporting has talked about how the investigation by the Department of Justice combined with the FBI has been focused on the hundreds and hundreds of people who overran the Capitol and were physically present there, notwithstanding Merrick Garland's statement that everyone who was involved would be held accountable at whatever level and whether they were present or not. But this reporting suggests that in recent weeks or in the last couple of months, the pace has picked up. And the focus is not just on the low-level folks who overran the Capitol and physically engaged in the insurrection, but also people around Trump and including Trump himself. It's one of the first reports to make this clear. We had a sign that the Justice Department was beginning to focus on Trump himself when we learned a couple of days earlier that two top officials who used to work for Mike Pence were called into the grand jury, not just before the committee, but the grand jury itself, Mark Short and Greg Jacobs. So it's not that surprising 
that this Washington Post report follows those news stories. What's DOJ focusing on? Well, reasonably, and in a way that should be anticipated, they're focusing on the conversations that Trump had with various people who were around him, most likely to get at his intent in connection with a potential criminal charge. What might those be? Well, I guess I suppose seditious conspiracy, with which some people who overran the Capitol have been charged. Well, that's, I think, a difficult and uphill charge to bring against Donald Trump for various reasons. More likely, they're seeing if they can meet the elements of a different statute that we've talked about before as well, obstruction of an official proceeding. And one judge, you may recall, has already found that there may be probable cause to believe that Trump and others violated that and other statutes. As has also been reported in recent days, the department is also probably looking at the fake elector scheme, and we'll see if anything comes of that as well. So the news is welcome, but there are a few things to keep in mind. One, I think the people, myself included, who said that if people were going into the grand jury at the highest levels, up to and including the former president, and if witness interviews were taking place, we would know about it. And I understand that the department does and tries to do its work in secret behind closed doors, but the way the world works and the way the press works, that just simply isn't possible when the stakes are this high. The second thing we know is the Justice Department seems to have a lot of catching up to do. As Joyce and I discussed this week on the Cafe Insider, it's clear that it's not sufficient for the committee to turn over transcripts of interviews that it has done, as in the example of Mark Short and Greg Jacob, the Justice Department has to do its own interviews and its own investigation and its own collection of documents. So what does that mean? That means we shouldn't necessarily expect an indictment of Trump or anyone else coming out of the Justice Department, and we shouldn't expect this to be resolved anytime soon. And the recent flurry of activity still doesn't answer the question, which we can put to the side for the moment, as to why these interviews and these grand jury subpoenas were not issued many months ago, when it was known that some of these folks had vital information that might bear on the question of whether Donald Trump and others in his orbit violated federal criminal statutes. But for now, I think we should be gratified that the Justice Department is doing the work. We also got a number of questions about Steve Bannon, his conviction, and his potential sentencing. This question comes in a tweet from GWO, who writes, Hey, Preet Bharara, I have a question. After hearing of the Bannon conviction today, why does sentencing take so long? Why the delay between conviction and sentencing generally in our justice system? Hashtag ask Preet. Well, that's a great question. I know much more about the federal system than about local systems. I think sentencing is, is much closer in time to conviction, whether by guilty plea or by trial conviction in many state courts. In the federal system, it's standard operating procedure for it to be about three months. So from the moment of a, of a jury verdict or a guilty plea, generally speaking, the judge will set sentencing for about three months off. The main reason for that is a substantial amount of work, depending on the complexity and nature of the crime and the conviction and how many defendants there are and whether there was or was not a trial, a substantial effort goes into preparing what's called pre-sentence report. The probation department, once a conviction is secured, must go to work. They outline in a substantial, sometimes fairly lengthy report for the court, for the prosecution, and for the defendant and their lawyers, an account of the offense conduct, the background, the relative culpability of that person compared to other people if it was a conspiracy or there are multiple defendants charged. They do a calculation based on the sentencing guidelines of what the proper sentence should be within the judge's discretion. There's also a period of time that allows both the defendant and the prosecution to object to conclusions or factual assertions in the pre-sentence report. You need to give parties time to do a back and forth. You also need to give uh, both the prosecution and the defendant time to make their arguments 
about sentencing, having had a chance to obtain the pre-sentence report, object to the pre-sentence report, and make arguments about it. And then, of course, you need to give the court, the judge in the case, some time to sit with the final version of the report, hear the arguments from counsel, consider the case, and make some preliminary decision about what the sentence would be before having a live court hearing at which sentencing is imposed. Does it need to be three months? I think in simple cases it need not be, but it does take some time. Now, bear in mind, if you are somebody who's been convicted of a crime and you are out on bail, even after being convicted, it's generally speaking no skin off your back for the sentencing to be delayed by three months because you're not serving time yet. And on the other side of the coin, if you're someone who has been held in custody pending trial and even after the trial conviction or upon the trial conviction, because that sometimes happens, those three months that you spend incarcerated count against your time ultimately. And of course, there are circumstances in which the sentencing is set not for three months after the conviction, but sometimes six months, 12 months, and even longer. That's usually in cases where there's been a guilty plea and the person who has pled guilty is cooperating with the government. And the sentencing is not supposed to happen until the full scope of the cooperation has been accomplished and realized. So it's a range, but three months is typical. And I know it's frustrating for people who want to see the final result. We got a related question about Steve Bannon as well. This one comes in an email from Danny who says, Dear Preet, what do you anticipate Bannon's sentence to be? I read in DOJ's release that it could be anywhere from 30 days and a maximum of one year in jail. Thanks, love the show. Well, thanks, Danny. I'm glad you love the show. So as we've said before, but just to remind folks, Steve Bannon was convicted on two counts, noncompliance with a request for documents and noncompliance with a request for testimony by the January 6th committee found guilty on two counts of contempt of Congress. Each of those counts carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 30 days and a maximum sentence of a year. And as I think we discussed in a prior show some weeks ago, it is up to the judge to decide whether or not sentence on each count runs concurrently or consecutively. So conceivably, Steve Bannon could serve two years in prison, one year on each count. I think that's unlikely because the nature of the conduct and the nucleus of facts that resulted in conviction is fairly overlapping and similar. Documents is different from testimony, but it's, it's the same basic defiance and non-compliance on the part of Steve Bannon. So I would imagine that whatever sentence is imposed on each count will be set to run concurrently. So what's my prediction? I don't know. I'm not the judge. I do think, however, that Steve Bannon, in light of the totality of the circumstances, as lawyers like to say, will get more than 30 days, whether he'll get the full year, you know, I don't know. But among other things that the judge might consider is the lack of contrition on the part of Steve Bannon, the fact that he was particularly aggressive in defying the subpoena, the fact that in contrast to other people who were called before the committee, including people who actually had jobs in the White House as official government employees and advisors to the president, unlike Steve Bannon, those people came, those people testified, and those people were appropriate from time to time, asserted some privilege, but were not belligerently non-compliant and fairly obnoxious about it. He also stands in contrast, not just to people who were on the president's staff, but family members, members of the Justice Department, and others with very, very little, arguably zero excuse not to comply. So given the clarity of the case, given the aggressiveness of his noncompliance, given the contrast between him and other folks who had better arguments not to comply, but complied nonetheless, I think the court is not going to be overly lenient with Steve Bennett. So my guess is somewhere in the range of a few months, possibly up to the year, but I doubt it'll be the full year. We'll be right back with my conversation with Joe Kennedy III. 
Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. The Legal Services Corporation is the single largest funder of civil legal aid for low-income Americans. In April, the organization released a report on what it calls the justice gap, which is, quote, the difference between the civil legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs, end quote. Former Representative Joe Kennedy III has been a champion of the Legal Services Corporation for over a decade, first in Congress and now as a member of its leaders' council. Former Congressman Joe Kennedy III, thank you for being on the show. I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, wonderfully with you, and thanks for having me. So my first question is, as a former government official, why do you not have a podcast yet, unless I missed it? <laughs> um, it's I, mandatory. It's in, exactly it's in the code. Right. Well, uh, we're testing a couple of them out. We'll see how well this goes. Oh, you and, are? See, I, I knew I was onto something. Oh, well, I was being somewhat facetious, but we'll, um, I think... Um, I'm not certain at the moment what the world needs more of is content from a former elected official, as much as former elected officials like to believe that what the world is missing is more content from them. Yeah, but who cares what the world wants? This is about you. <laughs> exactly right. Is that and how is that important. how you analyze things? That's not how Do other I, people analyze things. And am I depriving the world of more content from of me, right? Um, so we will see perhaps, um, but at the moment I'm just fine um, doing a little bit more listening than speaking. Well, I still think you should do a podcast. When you do, you can come on and promote it because Thank you. It's, it's the wave of the future, Congressman. So I wanted to start light because we, 
I feel like we have a lot of serious things to talk about. Yeah, such as the world. Such as the world, but uh, some of them that we don't speak about enough. And we have on the podcast from time to time talked about, you know, a super important issue that sometimes gets crowded out because we're talking about the insurrection and war in Ukraine and inflation and all sorts of threats to the, you know, the rule of law and the world order. But one background condition that I know you focus on, and one of the reasons we're having you on is to talk about this issue, is is the pervasiveness of poverty and the difficulty for people who experience poverty, particularly in the legal realm. You know, people understand how this might be problematic in healthcare, in housing, in all sorts of areas. But for the provision of legal services, it sometimes can be a big problem for folks just to orient people a little bit, like every, everyone I think understands, if you pay some attention to civics, that if you get charged with a crime, state crime or a federal crime, uh, not since the beginning of the Republic, but at some point in about six decades ago, the Supreme Court decided a case called Gideon v. Wainwright, which makes it clear that the Constitution guarantees you a right to a lawyer if you're charged with a crime. How am I doing so far, Professor? I, I think you're doing well. Okay. but. Should you have a legal issue or a civil legal problem that relates to a basic need and can cause you a great deal of, of harm and, and discomfort and can set you back financially and personally and even medically, and you need a lawyer to help you, you got to pay for that. There's no provision of that. Also fair? Very much so. I mean, highly unfair, but yes. Hi, <laughs> the statement is fair. The, the, the predicament is, is unfair. Yes. So, so here's where you come in. You have spent time, obviously, as a member of Congress, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But more recently, you have been on the board of the Legal Services Corporation, uh, which has put out a report called The Justice Gap. You have proposed laws and policies to, to take care of folks who are not in trouble criminally, but have trouble with, with civil legal problems. Could you describe the scope of the problem and why we should care about it? First off, again, thanks for having me and thanks for being willing to uh, devote some more and additional attention to this issue because, as you said, uh, we don't as a society. Um, and the consequences of this are devastating. And look, um, you pointed out, obviously, historically, the impact of a Supreme Court case, Gideon v. Wainwright, and what that means. I think most Americans, to the extent that they are aware of um, the fact that you get a lawyer, it's from like watching Law and Order and right. rerun someplace. <laughs> Lots right? of TV, yes. There you go. Um, and so you 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 know the Miranda warnings, and you have a right to an attorney. If you don't can afford one, the court will provide you one. And, and how important that is. Um, and just again, because you get an attorney doesn't necessarily mean they're good, but you know you get an attorney, which is a a basic level of um, or should be a basic level of competence to navigate the system because the impact of what um, the consequence of what being charged with a crime can mean uh, for you now, but for you in the future, right? If you're convicted of, a, of an offense, what that means for job, what that means for family, what that means for, um, you know, the rest of your life. The glaring hole in this is that most people are, uh, to the extent that they end up in a court system, it's for civil issues, not criminal ones. And the impact there can be, just as devastating, and sometimes even more so, right? A, a lot of low-level offenses, even ones that would uh, 
where an, a court-appointed attorney would be uh, given to you, th- those cases might get dismissed. Or if you don't have a big criminal record, they'll they'll you know end up in some sort of you know um, low-level agreement or whatnot, where the the consequences of this aren't going to be life-altering. You lose your home and are evicted, even if you had. Uh, affirmative defenses, if you had legal protections in place, that can have huge generational consequences for you and your family. And where I, you know, had my eyes open to this was actually as a, as a legal aid volunteer when I was in law school and just seeing the dramatic impact of the, the differing results of what would happen in Boston housing court if somebody had an attorney versus if they didn't. And the consequences, the downstream consequences of that and how that would, uh, those would manifest not just to the, the, at that point, the land, you know, the, the person renting the tenant, but their children, their grandchildren, um, the relationship with the justice system, all of it. And it just struck me because growing up in politics as I did, you know, you'd like to have this romanticized idea of, this is what we tell ourselves in our civics classes, what you tell yourself, you know, what, what's taught is the law impacts everybody equally. You know, you get um, public officials around the table, they debate these things, they understand the consequences of them, you have to get enough people to vote to approve a law, and they draft it, and they come up with it, it goes through committees, and ultimately is signed into law, and then it applies to everyone equally. Except that it obviously doesn't. <laughs> and when those protections are put in place to protect somebody like me, just the same way they're put in place to protect somebody that doesn't have the resources that that um, other families do, the fact is that they don't. And the consequences, again, can be devastating. And that's the part that so often gets overlooked. Um, and then the ter- secondary and tertiary consequences of this that are just devastating, despite the fact that, as you know better than anybody, um, lady justice is supposed to be blind, right? Like those scales, it's, you're not supposed to know who you are or who, who's being judged. You're just supposed to base an outcome off of facts and law and the reality is anything but. And so this is a critical part of our system that just gets overlooked. But, but that doesn't mean that the situation is hopeless. You know, there is something, um, an organization that you're involved with, I mentioned a moment ago, that's authorized by Congress, the Legal Services Corporation. Now, could you tell us a little bit about what the purpose of the Legal Services Corporation is and why an institution like that, if maybe funded a little bit better, couldn't fill the gap? So Legal Service Corporation um, is uh, an entity, again, as you said, funded by Congress that seeks to try to uh, alleviate uh, some the gaps in our in our justice system, right in our civil justice system. They are their primary area of, of focus ends up being these field grants, as they're called, but grants that comes money comes from the federal government, grants that then go into various offices around the country, every single state. And to try to make sure that people get um, that are in need of legal assistance, that if they qualify, um, and there's some restrictions on what types of cases they will take, there's income restrictions as well, but that they have access to a lawyer. Um, but this, you know, the, the, the lawyers, at least in my experience, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I imagine you've had a similar one, the lawyers that end up working at um, uh, places like Greater Boston Legal Services, um, Metro West Legal Services, and, and others, um, uh, end up being very talented lawyers that have dedicated themselves to um, making sure that that um, aspects of our justice system apply equally to everybody. Um, not every organization, legal services organization, will take LSE funding because of those restrictions, by the way. Um, and one big one is, again, on immigration cases, right? Um, but 
what they do is try to even this out, right? And to try to make sure there's some level of equity with regards to how our legal system is uh, is applied. They do enormous and tremendous work, right? They are these these are folks are heroes, and and if you equate the the court system with kind of the emergency room of our of our justice system, right? These are emergency uh, technicians that are doing everything they can, way overworked, way underpaid, um, extraordinarily de- dedicated individuals. But even LSC doesn't come close to filling the gap, right? Um, and uh, there's been some studies actually. Um, Part of this effort led by a uh, former justice, um, state Supreme Court justice, chief justice out of New York, um, that has looked specifically at the impact of what this would mean if you were guaranteed a if, – if a tenant was guaranteed a lawyer in an eviction case. And yes, you know, the, the price tag on that on the one hand is – you know, billions. On the other hand, when you look at what the cost of eviction means for that family and for that individual and for society, it saves money. Um, and so again, you get this question a little bit of um, what are we paying for and why versus should those dollars be allocated someplace else and, and be used far more effectively? I mean, this is the problem in trying to figure out the expediency of spending money on something, which you know, as well as anyone having been in Congress for a number of years, the cost is immediate and calculable, right? And concrete. What does it cost to fund a certain number of lawyers for every landlord-tenant problem in an eviction proceeding? The gain that you describe, which I, I heartily believe you're correct, that in the long term, over time, society gains uh, more than society spends on that lawyer, but that's not concrete, that's not calculable, and that's not something that a member of Congress can crow about in a chart. Fair? I think mostly fair. I would argue, I mean, listen, members of Congress crow about all sorts of stuff and they put all sorts of crazy things in a chart. So. They crow about infrastructure grants that they got, even though they voted against the infrastructure bill. That's my favorite. That's my members favorite. Members of Congress are very good at crowing. I think we can both agree on that. I, your point, though, is is very real, right? Is that, um, so I think two things, right? One, arguing the societal savings as to what this would mean is a hard thing to, to argue about because it's not, um, you know, taxpayer dollars are hard enough because people don't understand or feel exactly how those tax ta- their tax dollars are spent. Although they write a checks for for taxes, when you're tar- turning around and saying, "Well, this is a, the societal savings of that," no one really you can't put a finger on what that what that is. You can't name that feeling, right? The other part of it, in all candor, pre is a lot of the folks that end up being victimized by this disparity: lower income communities, uh, communities of color. Um, they are communities that oftentimes don't vote at the rates that other more active and politically engaged communities do. They're ones that if they have, you know, sometimes they're barred because they've got a criminal conviction, a felony conviction, and they can't vote. And so, you know, one of the, the big challenges from being a member of Congress where to some extent here writ large, um, part of a, the challenge of democracy is, you know, it is participatory, but those that participate more, those that know how to leverage that system will get attention from that system. There's not a huge constituency for people that are trying to make sure that somebody in the midst of a divorce, if um, you're not in an equal um, property state, if the husband makes all the money and the wife doesn't, and he's now suing for sole custody, if there's not some level of representation afforded to mom, that's not an equal hearing. Like she's not necessarily guaranteed that. Yeah. Um, 
And maybe a judge will say, hey, you know, somebody's got to pay for it, but who? And how much? And who gets to say it? And if that bill's coming from... So there, there's complexity here, and there's procedures put in place to try to mitigate some of that, but it ain't the same thing. Yeah. If you had to pick one thing, either based on your own experience and um, knowledge, or based on the report, the justice gap put out by the Legal Services Corporation, and you could only pick one kind of issue in which litigants would be guaranteed a lawyer provided free of cost, what would be the most impactful, you think? I mean, you're at this point like asking me to choose between children, so thank you. Um, <laughs> but but is it is it is it a tenant situation? Is it a, it is it divorce? I think landlord tenant is a is a huge one, right? I mean, one you've got you know uh, millions, uh, tens of millions of families across this country that are renters, right? Um, you also have protections that in every municipality are put in place to protect renters. Um, Right. In Massachusetts, we have a number of them, right? Um, But those things aren't helpful if you don't have a lawyer who knows how to advocate for them. Exactly right. Um, They are there. So you have, you know, you you will have myriad examples of families that are, um, you know, don't have a great relationship or are skeptical of a justice system. Um, You've got perhaps somebody that, you know, doesn't have um, clean um, or appropriate immigration status. You've got a landlord that is holding some of these issues over the heads of their tenants that then is saying, you know, if you complain about something, I'm going to report you to, or I'm going to make up a complaint, I'm going to report you to so-and-so or or such and such. And so you, you basically strip literally millions of families of these protections that are put in place to do just that, right, to provide that level of protection. And if you are able to even out that power dynamic, not only does it mean that tenants are able to to avail themselves of the existing laws on the books, you're not asking to pass anything other, any additional protections other than just ensuring that somebody has greater access to that protection. But now all of a sudden, you know, I I think um, a a pioneering work about eviction was a a book evicted by a a researcher and a professor from Princeton, Matthew Desmond, who... If I, I have the number right, I think he looked at um, a number of eviction at a number of different cities across the country and found that at least in one of them, the average cost of the the average amount that somebody was behind in their rent was like for which uh, necessitated an eviction or eviction proceedings were filed was like fifty bucks. Yeah, that's not a lot for some people. It, it's but for not others, a, it's a huge amount. It's a huge amount. It's not a lot. But then you think of, okay, well you're evicting landlord. Somebody's behind on their rent. They're going to get evicted. You're mobilizing, what, a constable or sheriff to come, four or five people, pull all of their stuff out, put it on the street. Somebody's got to come by and remove all those belongings. Or if they can, which good luck, where are they going to put it? Um, You're going to, in the midst of a school system or school year, you're going to have to relocate all of those kids and move them into a different school. That person has to go find another job with an eviction on their, or find another place to live with an eviction on their record. They're probably going to end up in a homeless shelter. Like all of the cascading impacts of this the cost to that family, the cost that we then bear as a society to fill the rest of these gaps because somebody was behind in their rent by 50 bucks or a couple hundred bucks, like that makes no sense. None. Yeah. And yet this is a system that we now perpetuate. And of course, you know, where we're going here is now a lot of that lower income housing, right? Particularly, oddly enough, mobile home parts are now actually owned and managed by some of the largest private equity firms in the country. Are there larger programs that would do a better job of dealing with poverty? So you deal with the root, the root problem. So I'll give you an example of something that has become a little bit more popular in recent times, maybe because of the, the checks sent to Americans during the pandemic. 
Do you have a feeling or thought or belief about universal basic income, UBI? So UBI, I think, is certainly a um, a policy option that deserves um, an awful lot of consideration and I think is worth um, testing in uh, a number of circumstances. The part that um, I will say, at least from what I'm familiar with anecdotally, right, is that um, – and the part that I think policymakers need to be concerned about, right? Um, for one of the biggest aspects of where that money would go, i.e., rent, that all of a sudden rent just doesn't go up, right? So if you have um, in a community where you say, "Hey, look, we'll try this for um, you know Queens or Brooklyn or Roxbury, Dorchester in Massachusetts, or you know, uh, and a subset of folks that are lower income, and we're going to guarantee you say a thousand dollars a month for." Um, you know, the next year and or two years and see how it goes. Uh, I think one of the concerns that you folks have is, um, at least that I have, is does that just mean landlords knowing that their um, tenants are going to have at least a thousand dollars a month? Do they just jack up their rents by two hundred fifty bucks, right? And it just becomes a pass through um, back off to to somebody else further upstream, right? So though the goal of UBI to ensure that everybody has sufficient resources to cover basic needs, I 100% agree with. Is there circumstances in which that I think the the proper procedures can be put in place where that could be effective? I hope so. Um, are there concerns where perhaps um, various aspects of our current system would try to take advantage of uh, that distribution? Yes. And I think we need to just mitigate the downsides of that, if that makes sense. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Joe Kennedy III after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child 
didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So one way to accomplish these things and to, to close the gap is through legislation. Legislation in our system gets passed by the Congress, of which you are no longer a member. So my question to you is, do you miss it? Um, there's parts of the work that I miss. Uh, for um, your listeners, you will uh, obviously know that, um, or might know, that uh, I'm no longer there, not because I uh, decided against it, but because um, I, I tried my hand at um, uh, at a Senate race and it wasn't successful. So yes, yeah, we're going to talk about that, that too. You, not there only you go. Um, did you try your hand at a Senate race, you did something that is very unusual. You challenged the incumbent Democratic senator. Yes, I did all um, those things. Um, Mr. Markey, mm-hmm. in a primary, mm-hmm. even though you had, I believe... Fair to say, quite a safe house seat. Yes, all of those are things are are very fair to say. Um, so we're gonna we'll come back to the race in a moment. But candor, please, on whether you miss it or do you think like I guess the other way to ask the question is: Imagine you were in the house now, with everything going on with the one six committee, and the and the insurrection at Capitol Hill, and the divisiveness, and you know some of the members of the opposing party who don't seem to care about legislating at all. How do you think you'd be feeling if you were in the house today? I think I'd be um, angry, frustrated, sad, and, um, you know, upset. And look, the, the reality of this, Preet, and the part that, uh, you know, is there's lots of aspects of this life uh, or public life that are difficult, right? Um, one of my um, realizations in the past 18 months since I've been out of office is that the quality of life outside of office is really an awful lot better than the quality of life in that office, right? <laughs> and it's not, I, I say that as an unfortunate consequence because um, it, that's too bad, right? It's too bad that life is, um, you know, I've got young children. I, I get to see them grow up. I was teaching our daughter how to ride a bike this weekend. I didn't, you know, it's not that I had no free time before, but I didn't have much. And you were always under pressure to be someplace, where you weren't, whether that was in Washington or campaigning for other people or, you know, around your district, your time was never wholly yours. Um, you know, I, I believe in government. Well, that, that raises a question that I'm sure you've been asked before, although I haven't seen if you've answered it. Uh, you know, your family has some legacy. You're the grandson of Robert F. Kennedy. Your grand uncles include Ted Kennedy and the former president, John F. Kennedy. Your father was a member of Congress. Why'd you get in in the first place? And to the extent you can answer without offending members of your family, did you feel obligated as a matter of family or did you feel some obligation for the same reasons they went into public service? How would you explain why you went in, particularly given what you're saying now about how difficult uh, that life was? So um, a lot in that question. So forgive me for- um, Take your time. I'm not in the position where I'm actually able to officially filibuster, but this will be my, my <laughs> consolation prize. Um, the person that pushed me hardest not to run was, in fact, my father, who served for 12 years in, in the Congress. And I think, you know, wouldn't be a surprise to anyone that actually has 
personally, like you have, um, seen, ex- served um, at a high level of public office, understand the enormous kind of conflicting pressures that come with it, elected, appointed, or otherwise, and what the job requires of you, right? You could have had, um, you were the head of the largest and most powerful law firm in the world, right, in Southern District of New York. You could have great plans to go to your brother's wedding, your kid's wedding. Stuff happens and it changes and there ain't squat you can do about it, right? And, you know, over time, those things happen and it just, like the job, the lifestyle takes from you. And it is unforgiving and unrelenting in that regard. Um, So, you know, part of that you can know intellectually until you're in it. You're not going to know exactly how that feels. And by the way, over the years, know what it means – if you if that happens once or twice, it's one thing. When that is just your lived reality with no end date, that that becomes another. Um, the but to your your part of your initial question anyway, it was my family members that pushed me hardest not to run, which some people find surprising um, because I think. But they, on what on what on what was the what was the argument from your from your dad? The argument being that if you think you're doing that, if you are doing this because you think you either should or it's a family you know profession or calling or whatever else the job the job requires too much of you to do that out of some sense of like hey i think i should and whatever however humble or noble or or altruistic those reasons are right like unless this is something you actually want to do and dedicate dedicate your life to it's just not worth it and by the way um you'll get chewed up and spit out but by the way, on the range of reasons why people run for office, and there are lots of reasons, what you've described your family members saying is not the ideal reason. It is still a better reason than the motivation of some people who just want to be famous or want to have power for the sake of having power. You agree with that? Yes. And I think what my dad was getting to on that is this you have to be you have to be willing to um put your own, you know personal life, right, and your family, and be in a partnership where people understand that, like, there's going to be days you just can't get home, and there's going to be times that you just can't control, and it's that family that is going to have to suffer and suck it up, right? And are you, you know, make sure you want to do that. Um, you know, they, they pre- I used to be asked to talk often to um, candidates that had young families as kind of the guy that also has a young family and, you know, can find a way to make this work. And what they, some folks realized afterwards was like, they probably shouldn't ask me to do that anymore. <laughs> because <laughs> you're not a good spokesperson. Goes, Listen, well, look, man, like, look what you're saying. Understand what you're signing up for here. Right. Well, and you also had a, you know, you could have waited. Uh, not everyone has a young family They're You know, this is an issue that people most have don't. with the Congress. Right. They're fairly uh, old. And, and some would say some of them are, are too old. You had a young family because you ran for office at a pretty young age. And then my next question is, um, and I hope you don't find these these questions overly bold, you then ran for the Senate. Is that, is that, did you think that the Senate might be more family-friendly than the House? <laughs> um, I don't think there is a family-friendly job in um, the upper echelons of elected office. The House isn't yeah. a whole family-friendly job. I don't think your job was a family-friendly job, and and I don't think the Senate is really a family-friendly job. And I think, you know, people think, oh, well, it's a six-year term. You're not as campaigning as, you know, as often or whatnot. And on the one hand, that's true. You're not up for re-election. The the reality is, though, particularly now, most House seats 
on either side of the aisle aren't all that competitive. The ones that are are very competitive, but most aren't. And so you're not at that level of desperation in terms of kind of being going 100 miles an hour all day, every day, you know, perpetually. And look, in all honesty, I think I think some structural reform there is necessary where these jobs, these seats should be more competitive. Um, and because of that, if you if it requires you to work 80 hour weeks for you know 10 years and you're burned out afterwards, that's fine, right? There's no reason why these jobs should be someplace where somebody goes for 50 years. And I say that for somebody whose family members served an awful long time in office. But if people have the appetite and the ability and are um, have the connection with the voters where they keep sent, being sent back, fine. But you have to go out there and earn it every time you're up for re-election. And there's structural aspects that can make that more competitive, which would, I think, provide a greater connection um, with our between elected officials and the electorate and actually make our democracy stronger. That's a, so let me, a, a let me ask you, issue, right? Yeah. So let me ask more directly. So, cause I think there are lessons you can impart to other people who observe politics and are in politics. And I wonder what those, what those lessons are, but the preliminary question. So why did you, why did you run against Ed Markey in the primary in Massachusetts? It's a good question. Um, I respect Senator Markey. Um, I've supported Senator Markey in the past. I support him today. I, I obviously voted for him. Maybe not obviously, but I voted for him. Um, are you still the, Are you still friendly? There's no bad feelings. Um, I'm. I am. St- we are still friendly. Um, I think you're, you were still friendly with <laughs> with him. Is he still have, friendly with you? We We are. I I think I don't okay. want to say with all, all the the most amount of respect to the senator. I. I can't say if there's any hard feelings in that regard. And I also wouldn't begrudge him if there was, right? This is, he is somebody that served for a long time with multiple family members. I served with him. I had a good relationship with him. And I have no doubt that it's only human and natural to be stung by the fact that, hey, you know, you've been doing your best and all of a sudden this kid comes in and challenges you and like, you know. And you were, you were, you were how old? 38? Uh, 30, about to be 40. When I ran. Before, yeah. When you ran. Did you, did you at any point, maybe this is totally unfair, but it pops into my head and it wasn't obviously at the same level. It was a Senate election, not a presidential election. But when you were running against Markey in the primary, did you have visions of your, your granduncle, Ted Kennedy, running against Jimmy Carter in the primary in 1980? Did you ever think about that or no? No, um, I, I mean I didn't. Plenty of people yeah. made the, have made the comparison since. Well, they like right? to, people like to compare Kennedys. Uh, that, that, yeah, yes, um, people do, and um, not surprising to you, um, those aren't always the best comparisons for me, right? When you're, you're comparing yourself to um, John F. Kennedy or Robert Kennedy or Ted Kennedy, right? Those are um, three three tough comparisons, right? Um, and I I take that um, with an immense amount of pride, even though you know that's. Uh, that's a tough, uh, a tough mismatch for me. Um, but I, I'm, I am proud of the contribution that they made and, and what they've done and what they stand for. And the fact that people are going to make the comparison with me, you know, um, what are you going to do? Right. Um, I think one of the things that I learned in this life was, um, much like my, my father's advice was this is you, right. It ain't RFK, it ain't JFK, it ain't Ted Kennedy. It's you. And you have to own the upside and the downside to that. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, um, I think there's, um, you know, I, I support Senator Markey. I'm, um, I had supported him. I, I obviously ran a campaign because I think there was, um, other ways in which one could leverage the power of being a United States Senator. And I thought would be more active and engaged. 
Um, I made the case it for a variety of reasons. You know, it wasn't an effective one. Um, and I respect that. And I respect the, the will of the Massachusetts voters. Um, and I, um, I respect the fact that they uh, wanted to send him back to the Senate for six more years. Um, and I was proud to be able to support him through a general election. So I'm a little worried, and many of your fans may be worried if, if they're listening to this, th that it sounds like you don't have much appetite for running again. You're still a very young man. Are you, in your mind, thinking no more elective office for you, or you're not sure? I, I'm not sure. I'm not. Um, I have made the decision in my head to, knowing how, how um, the challenges of that life, not only you know, the opportunities come up, um, relatively infrequently. Um, if you are out of it, it's harder to stay engaged than you are if you're in it. Um, and that I, you know, I look, I, I believe in the power of government and what it can do when it, the, that power is, I think, appropriately focused. Again, I ran for the Senate, um, in, in, in large part because of that. Um, and it didn't work. Right. So it's not like I all of a sudden was ready to kind of pick up and walk away. It's I cared deeply enough about this to risk my career on it. Again, that didn't work, but at the same time, I'm not going to sit around and, um, kind of pine for, or try to force my hand into whatever race happens to come up. I've got an incredible family, young kids. I think there's a, a lot of ways to, um, to serve and to stay engaged, issues like legal services, issues like climate, issues like um, the the kind of long-term transformations and transitions we are seeing within our political system that need care and attention that I'm dedicated myself to um, then and now. And if the opportunity comes up and it's the right thing for me and my family at that time, I'll consider it. But I'm not I'm not going to be yearning for it or pining for it. You're not sitting plotting at this moment. No. Your return to politics. You know, I, I wasn't going to ask this, but I just think this is a very honest conversation. You know, from time to time, I will address the issue of why, you know, I haven't run for office. I've had opportunities from time to time, obviously. There's a lot about the act of running that relates to raising money and compromise. The there are all sorts of reasons why, you know, it's not my cup of tea. And I also give an answer that you give, which is, you know, if, <laughs> if there's the appropriate opportunity at some point, you know, you never rule anything out in life. And I would certainly entertain opportunities to be back in public service. I was 17 and a half years. I cared about it so much that, that I had to be fired <laughs> in order to-, to, to Hey, me to, too. So there you go. Well, a little bit, yeah. Um, I had one guy fire me. You, you had a, you know, there's a, <laughs> a lot, you had a lot a of lot people in your, in your corner too. Um, you had a lot more affirmative votes. But, you know, I think about my kids who are, who are very aware of politics and, in fact- I mean, my, my daughter, I can, I can reveal, I think I'm allowed to reveal, um, worked for a candidate in your district when you had to leave the position to run for the Senate. She worked for a candidate who was seeking to replace you. Her candidate came in like third or fourth, I think. Um, so she's interested in public service. My, my boys are also interested in it. And I, I am not sure how I feel about their interest in, you know, if they have any, in particular in running for office. Pretend you're speaking to them for a minute or any young person who wants to affect change and cares about their country and cares about their community, about how they should think about running or not running for office. Oh, boy. Um, it's a lot of responsibility. Go. Great. Thanks. So I think, <laughs> unfortunately, like most things in life, it's more complicated. Your question kind of gets into a very uh, complex and complicated series of 
um, equities to balance, right? So on the front end, right, um, the people that hold the positions of president, senator, and congressman, congresswoman, are incredibly consequential and important. And so we need good people in those in those positions. And if you don't run, you know, no guarantee that the person next to you is going to do a better job than you would. So why the heck not? The reality, though, that I also came to understand from a lot of time that I spent running around the country, um, and I spent a lot of time running around the country campaigning for other candidates in the House, in the Senate, governor's races, presidential races. Um, and because of um, my my family and the fact that, um, you know, my family means different things to different folks, but... Um, they, it has, my family has particular resonance from places that sometimes today's Democratic Party doesn't, right? So I could go to West Virginia um, and campaign for people. I could go to um, parts of rural America and campaign for people. Um, I could go to Rio Grande Valley and campaign for other candidates. Um, I, oddly enough, I, I speak fluent Spanish from my time in the Peace Corps. I could, I could do, I could go some places and, and campaign for folks that weren't necessarily kind of the. Um, traditional democratic stomping grounds, or at least today's democratic stomping grounds. And what you realize is that perhaps not by design, but by consequence, by reality today, the entire electoral system on the democratic side of the aisle is focused on short-termism, right? Every race is existential. Every presidential race, certainly. But this race for the Senate, how important it is that we keep the Senate for the next two years for Joe Biden. The consequence of what will happen in the House, depending on how, the the outcome of whether the House flips and by how much, right? Um, conservative movement was far more sophisticated and far um, more strategic about how they went about that. And yes, there's the existentialness of um, of every single race and every cycle, but they built up a entire parallel campaign system that takes a longer term view. That is far more strategic about the impact of state legislatures, state courts, school boards, organizations that can help build people together. Literally, the, the kind of political infrastructure that is needed and necessary for people to be able to run and be successful in winning some of these campaigns in tougher territory. That is, they set up that infrastructure in the long term, knowing that they weren't going to be able necessarily to win every race. But knowing that if they did that for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, it would return tremendously to their benefit. And they are now reaping what they sowed. And so do I, would I tell somebody to go, hey, run for school committee or run for city council or run for mayor or run for Congress? Yes, right? I, I certainly wouldn't tell them not to do it. I'd want them to understand the, the benefits and the drawbacks of each one of those positions. But I would also urge them to say, hey, States like Alabama, states like Mississippi, states like West Virginia, these are states that get written off oftentimes by the political powers that be on the left, which one, isn't fair, and two, isn't right, and three, isn't smart, right? You can't, I can't tell you how many times all over the country I said, look, for Democratic Party, we see you, we hear you, we value your humanity, we value your dignity, we want you on our team, we want you on the field, we, we this country, are some of every single one of us in our collective parts, and we are going to be the biggest, boldest, strongest nation, we are all in this together. And then we never went to 20 of the states. <laughs> right. So you're saying the Barrara family should relocate to Alabama. I think- And then uh, run. Yes. Um, <laughs> We could do yes. that. So um, that I think that would be a start. Um, <laughs> okay. But I think there's a lot of ways in which um, 
young people can get active and engaged that says, hey, if I don't want to put myself or my family through the rigors of, of being the candidate right now, there's a lot of other work that has to go into actually helping create the the structures that will enable our candidates to run and actually be, be quite good training for somebody that wants to run down the road. I want to ask you one more question about your family and you'll understand it's, it's kind of a meta question because you have, you have that name and you have those relations and it's fascinating to be, I, I've, I, I'm not going to bother you with this, but your grandfather meant a lot to me, even though I was born like you after he passed and, and others have meant a lot to a lot of, I was at an event with your aunt Carrie Kennedy, some months ago, and I just sort of, and I was sitting at her table, and I witnessed person after person during the course of the evening come up to her, people who uh, had never met her before, and invariably they wanted to talk about her dad or her uncle or, or some other Kennedy who meant something important to them, and, and she was, uh, you know, very gracious. Uh, Every single time. And, and I wonder, maybe this is a question you can't answer. Do you ever find people's insatiable interest in, in talking to you about members of your family who are no longer with us uh, and those who are? Do you find that to be a burden? Do you find that to be tiresome ever? And, and if it were, would you ever admit that? <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I appreciate it's, a, it's an, unfair, an unfair question, but I just, I just wonder what, what, what is that like and how do you, how do you think about it? I think um, I take the upside on that, Preet, yeah. and I think that when people mention it to you uh, or mention it to me, it's coming from a genuine place. Um, even if people don't necessarily phrase the question the right way, or, or you know, um, perhaps are a bit awkward about how it comes out, um, you know, I guess in the spirit of honesty, like, am I all that excited to? to hear the stories about where people were when one of my family members was assassinated. Yeah. Like yeah. not really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of an awkward thing to, I, I never thought about it that way. No, that turn to I somebody and say like, Hey, I can imagine. can you Right. That's not what they mean by it though. Right. What they mean by it is he they felt a connection and yes. And, and that person was special to them. Right. Um, and so, and that happens all the time. Right. And I understand, I believe anyway, or I perhaps project that, this is actually coming from a good place that people are, um, were touched in some way by one of my relatives and inspired by them. Um, and I think, you know, that, um, again, I've, I've been around public life long enough to know that, um, there's going to be some people that think that you, you know, you're can walk on water because of, things your grandfather or one of his brothers or sisters said and didn't that, you know, <laughs> hate to, hate to break it to you. Probably not true. And there's going to be some people that, you know, hate you for those very same reasons. Right. And, you know, also not true. The, the part that how I take that is to say at, at their best, my family members, I think believed in the promise of this country understood that we were far from a perfect place, but also believed in the promise of what we could be if we set our minds to it. I mean, he, my, my great uncle believed it so much that he decided to say we could go to the moon, right, in 10 years. And like, that's a crazy, it was a crazy idea at that point. And like, yet we did, right? Um, and we did, there's still enormous challenges we have here 
domestically, right? There is still hunger. There's still enormous depravity through the Mississippi Delta. And my grandfather went through there on a very high profile trip, right? You know, but we still have allowed these, these disparities to perpetuate. But that is also a choice, right? And it is a choice. And that we, part of the, the role of politicians, right? It wasn't so much their voting record, although in part it was, but it was their ability to, to point that out to people and say, our future is the going to be the result of our collective choices. And if you can motivate people to make that choice and believe in that big, bold, vibrant future, we can make it so. And um, I think people want to believe in that. I think the challenge in this is that there's forces that are fine with the existing power structures and don't want that change, and they're going to fight against it. And this is where, again, you know, we need all, all, all hands on deck. All hands on deck. We're moving to Alabama for your <laughs> suggestion. There you go. We're going to get it. We're going to get it done. What about the modern day and concerns about democracy? How do you think the January sixth committee is doing? What do you think the the future of the House? in the short or medium term looks like, what's your, what's your worry? I mean, I got a lot of worries, right? Um, <laughs> and yeah. I, you, you know, got 99 you, worries, right? <laughs> Probably more than that. Um, but, and, and I would defer to the distinguished, uh, us attorney from the Southern district as to kind of the, the legal implications of what happens if the electoral conduct is reformed and just, you know, how so, and what happens, the, the, legal opportunities that still exist in all of these secretary of state races and whatnot. Um, I think there's a big question that um, uh, obviously is not decided yet as to what to do about the former president's actions. Um, you know, not for nothing, Preet, this was not your question, but I was a, you know, an entry level prosecutor for several years. I read the Mueller report. There's enough evidence to try the president for, um, you know, obstruction of justice that is on written on one page, one single page of that report. I tried cases on less, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, with all due respect to, to former director Mueller, like, I don't think that's actually a close call. And when you outline 10 different instances that potentially rise to that bar of obstruction or, or crimes that could be charged, you know, that, that's a whole nother question. Not to say he, he would have been or should have been in all 10 of those, but like the acts of, uh, the commissions of, of, illicit conduct here were rife across this entire administration. And so, you know, I, I am very, um, the weight that is on members of the January 6th commission, um, the justice department, whatever, to try to get this right, knowing the political firestorm that will come back at them is not an easy choice, but it's, um, the position that they're in and we need them to make a, a wise one. I think the commission itself, um, has actually done a, a, a very good job of, um, staying focused and sharp on the actions of uh, the former president during this time. And um, I think the uh, attorney general is going to have a um, understanding that he's got a lot of information there that presumably that, that I don't, that isn't in the public sphere, that he's got a, a weighty um, decision to make. I would be interested to turn that one around on you to say, <laughs> given your experience and given the, the evidence that you have seen, how you would approach that. I'm going to pass. <laughs> we only have a few minutes. I, I address that. I address that elsewhere, and we can address that off offline. But I, I, I want to get a couple more things yeah. in. Go for it. Because I have the luxury of having you. Can we jump prematurely to 2024? Yes. What do you think is going to happen in 2024? I don't think anybody that I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen in 2024. I think that um, my own. Um, so there's 
there's two op- options really here on the conservative side of the aisle. Um, in my conversations with former colleagues and, and Republicans in the know, they say about half of them say Trump is definitely going to run for president. Um, right. Some of them say he'll announce after the midterm. Some say he might do it beforehand. Who knows? Yeah, I think he's running. I think he, I think he's almost definitely running. Do you? I I think he wants to. I also think you know there's a piece in in the news today about um, Murdoch moving past Trump, and I think you've you've seen editorials now in the oh, New York yeah. Post, yeah. your beloved yeah. New York Post, but also yeah. the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. Um, you know, coming at him pretty hard. Uh, it, I would not be surprised if you start to see Fox start to and the conservative outlets start to to move by him because as difficult as the past year has been for for the incumbent for President Biden politically and it's been a, a tough a brutal year of headlines fair and unfair he still beats President Trump in those polls right um, because I think people know that when you remind them of what uh, a Trump presidency was people still say no thanks. Um, it's one thing for a conservative um, movement to embrace Donald Trump when he was a nominee and then he was the incumbent and he was being challenged and he's their guy. It's another thing when he's the weakest link in the chain when it comes to unseating President Biden. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious how that shifts over the course of the next 18 months. Right? Right. How formidable Here. a candidate do you think Ron DeSantis would be? I think this is the challenge is that Donald Trump in every primary, every poll for every primary, Trump still wins. But it's still early, right? There hasn't been, I mean, every month here, you're seeing Republicans start to inch further and further. You know, there's Republicans that are now going to Iowa and New Hampshire. There's ones that are more overtly testing presidential waters. Ron DeSantis has raised $130 million for his gubernatorial reelection. You can't tell me that like that 131st millionth dollar raised is for his gubernatorial race, right? No one believes that. Would you agree that the least self-aware potential Republican candidate in the country is Mike Pence? <laughs> I think um, I think that's a I think that's a tough race as to which Republican uh, presidential candidate is least self-aware. Um, I'm voting Pence. I'm yeah. going with Pence. Um, um, I have a hard time understanding, look, if there's one issue with politicians writ large, right? Um, your former boss, tried to get you killed and you're still not willing to say a bad thing about him. Right. Like, yeah, that's kind of crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so right? that's why I vote Pence. Yeah. The cognitive for, for that category, um, across the spectrum there, um, is disgusting. So uh, he's right up there. Senator Warren running in 2024. Um, I think Joe Biden will be running in 2024. I think if you do. Joe Biden, do you really think that I, are you required to say that as an alum of the I, Congress? I am. I am not required to say that. I do think. Um, look, I. I still think that as challenges as these these times are, and, and being president of the United States, the hardest job in the world. Um, two things. He was my book. He was elected largely because he is a good and decent man. And even Republicans that disagree with him say that about him. And it, it is one hundred percent true. He is a good and decent man. Um, I think politics in this country still needs more decency and goodness. Um, and I think in a campaign that the harshness, the brashness and, and some of the, the literally the, the just vitriol and violence that we're seeing from uh, some of the presidential candidates, some of the presidential aspirants on the right will 
shine through. I think he was also, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge this administration has had is expectations that with 50 votes in the Senate um, and only a five vote or six vote majority in the House, that they could structurally redefine the, the constructs of our society. And that's hard to do if you can't lose a single senator, right? Bernie Sanders yeah. and Joe Manchin. And he wasn't, at least in my books, wasn't elected to do that. He was elected to bring us back to uh, decency and get us back on track. And I think depending on what happens in the next couple months, remember the, the past rescue package, COVID is still a thing, but it's not what it was. They passed a massive infrastructure bill. They did something on gun violence. It looks like they're going to get something on drug prices. It looks like they're going to get something on... Um, Industry supports, particularly for for semiconductors, which is a major, major issue for all sorts of industry here. Yeah, but nobody knows. But, they don't. But nobody knows any of this. Like there are polls that say, incredible percentages of people have no idea that infrastructure passed. They think it failed. They do, and but that's and look, <laughs> trying to get people to pay attention even to a political campaign is hard. Yeah. But you haven't run a campaign yet on that, right? Like you got one challenge, you knock it down, you go down to the next, yeah. and. When you compare this to um, what that alternative is, and remember the alternative at this point is what we're seeing come out from a January 6th commission. Aside from the fact that this time it's not going to be, you know, Joe Biden or Liz Warren or Democrat criticizing Donald Trump. It's his daughter. It's his attorney general, right? It's his campaign manager. Yeah. People saying he lost and we told him and he knew. And he tried to get his vice president hung. You know, you run a campaign on that. It you're not. There's going to be plenty of his folks that will never believe otherwise. You don't have to win every vote in this country. Yeah, right. You got to win enough. You, you got to cut him down. Yeah. Uh, you know the the population that supports him unequivocally. You just got to get that number down. I agree. Joe Kennedy, thank you for your time, and more importantly, thank you for your service. Hey, likewise, my friend. Take care and thank you. My conversation with Joe Kennedy III continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I'd like to talk for a moment about the upcoming election season. Now, I know many people are rightly focused on the important federal races in November that will determine party leadership in Congress. Some, myself included, are also talking about 2024 already. And of course, the federal elections will have ramifications as to what President Biden can and cannot do in the final two years of his first term. There is so very much at stake. And the midterms are important. And the next presidential election is certainly very important. But I want to take a moment to highlight the significance of state elections too. They're important as well. And that's particularly so now, when so many things are being left to the states. Exhibit A is the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. Without action, a woman's right to choose will be only the first of many other fundamental rights thrown into question with ominous state and national implications. And the reason I mention state races is there was an important primary just this past week. It was in the state of Maryland, where I once lived. There, political outsider Wes Moore secured the Democratic primary nomination for governor of the state. Wes is one of the most accomplished people I know. He's a Rhodes Scholar, combat veteran, best-selling author, 
and former CEO of Robinhood, one of the nation's largest anti-poverty organizations. And if elected, he would become Maryland's first black governor. And he's only 43 years old. You may recall, Wes was a guest on Stay Tuned in April 2020. We talked about his vision to fight poverty and how best to aid society's most vulnerable, who were disproportionately impacted during those early days of the pandemic. So I feel confident that Wes Moore would be an effective and good governor for the state of Maryland. But it's important to take note of the alternative. That person's name is Dan Cox, the Trump-endorsed candidate, someone who even Larry Hogan, the outgoing Republican governor of Maryland, has stridently denounced, saying, I wouldn't let him in the governor's office, let alone work for the governor's office. So as you think about and care about and participate in the midterm elections and the federal elections that are coming up, think and care about and get involved in state elections too. And in my view, electing candidates like Wes Moore to the governor's mansion would be the right move not just for Maryland, but also the country. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Joe Kennedy III. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.